I really don't like amusement parks all that much, but there is a ride at Universal Studios that, in my estimation, is the best roller coaster in the world. I don't mean it's the fastest. I don't mean it has the most twists. I don't mean it'll make you the sickest by the time you come to an end. It's just a really good roller coaster. Now, it's in the Harry Potter world, and I, I thought if I say the words Harry Potter in church, I'm going to bring in a whole bunch of new stuff, and I don't mean that. I don't, I'm not bringing in Harry Potter. I don't care that it's in Harry Potter world. It has nothing to do with Harry Potter, with the message. It's just the fact that's where the roller coaster is that I particularly like. Now, the point of this roller coaster that the Universal Studios created is just ingenious. And what makes it so good is that on one side of the roller coaster, you sit in a little sidecar, and the other side, you sit on a motorcycle. The motorcycle part, I'm just going to tell you, is clearly the best part of the ride. If you get stuck in the sidecar, and I've ridden it that way, it's just a completely different ride than if you're sitting on the motorcycle. And, and I love this ride, but I hate waiting in line, and there's my dilemma. Because this particular ride is not just beloved by me, but millions of people worldwide. You go first thing in the morning, you get a special pass, you can get in the park right as it opens, or even a little early. You, you stand for about an hour out in the hot Florida morning sun, or, or in our case one time, the cold morning of Florida, and you wait for the, them to just release the gates. It's kind of like at the Kentucky Derby, as they all line up all the horses, and the gates fall, and everybody just starts running. And it's interesting because the way the park's laid out, there's this big lake you have to walk around, and some choose to walk left to their own demise, and others choose to walk to the right. And you go, and you have to walk through all these different exhibits that they have. You have to go through Dr. Seuss World, and you have to walk, keep walking around until you get to the ride, and you get there, and there are all these people that who knows where they came from, but that beat you there. And they, it wasn't the people who went left, by the way. These are brand new people you haven't seen over the last hour. But they're standing there, and there's a lady standing there wearing her Universal Studios outfit and a sign that says, two-hour wait. Now, something that newbies don't know is just because the lady's standing there with a sign that says, two-hour wait, doesn't mean there's a two-hour wait. In fact, if you see her first thing in the morning standing there and says, two-hour wait, what she means is 20-minute wait. So our first time doing this, we went, I'm not waiting two hours, got out of line, and then realized uh, after just a little bit that that wasn't a two-hour wait until we decided to get back into the line, and then it was a two-hour wait. <laughs> and so we have this thing now where we say, okay, first thing in the morning, you want to ride this ride because it really is a great ride. You get up there, you ride the ride. But then after that, you have to ride single rider. If you want to not waste your day, Stand in line for four hours, and I'm not making that up, four hours. If you don't want to stand in line for 300 minutes or something, then you have to decide, I'm going to ride by myself. And the only problem with riding by yourself is everybody knows the motorcycle is the better part of the ride. So you get up there, and you're just hoping beyond hope that the person they stick you with has no idea what they're doing. Because if they have no idea what they're doing, they'll look at you and go, where do you want to ride? And I'll, and I'll look at them and go, well, you know, I mean, ah. I'll let you have the sidecar. It's the, it's the safer of the two places. I'll just take this lowly motorcycle place. And, and, uh, and then you get the most glorious experience because you have a lap belt and that's it. You're on a motorcycle completely exposed in this roller coaster as you're whipping around and going up and down and backward and forward and you almost feel like you're flying. It is a wonderful experience. 
But when you're standing in that single rider line, what you realize is only one person can get on that motorcycle. Only one. And you're really hoping that it's going to be you. And if it's not you, you end up stuck in that little sidecar wishing that you were on the motorcycle because there's not room for two people on the motorcycle, just one. And my friends, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say because it's really important. There's only one gospel. Only one. You can't have two. There aren't two. There aren't ten. There are not multiple ways to God. Jesus said, I am the way. It's not Jesus or Buddha or Jesus, Muhammad. It's not Jesus and Ganesh or any of the other Indian gods. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's just Jesus. That's the only way to God. And the gospel of Jesus, the message of salvation that we have in Christ, is that Jesus died for our sins. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And there is no other message. There's no room in Christianity's for two gospels or ten. There's no room for two means of salvation. There's only one, and that's the gospel of Jesus. This is why we take such care to protect or defend the gospel. There's no room for another. As much as it makes us seem to be angry or discriminatory or old-fashioned, we cannot accept the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of Mormonism. They, cannot be, they are not compatible. They cannot go together. We cannot accept the gospel of Jesus and the Jehovah's Witnesses or Roman Catholicism or liberal Christian theology. They don't go together. Moreover, those groups or denominations who have abandoned the gospel at this point must be cast aside also. And you're not happy to do that. I hope you're not happy. We don't relish that. But we cannot have Christian fellowship with non-Christians. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mean we, we can't have uh, familiarity or a friendship with non-Christians. Someone who's a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a Roman Catholic, we, can't, we must befriend people like that in order to give them the gospel. We ought to befriend Jewish people, Hindus, Muslims, non-religious Americans in our neighborhoods and communities. They should be part of our friend groups, but they cannot be part of the church. There's no room for them on this ride. The only people we can really have Christian fellowship with are other Christians. And I'll, I'll just add to that as an aside, that if they are really Christians, we should have Christian fellowship with them. We will for all eternity. And I'm not saying we can always completely cooperate with everything every other believer or church does. There are sometimes limits on our cooperation, particularly if the other believer or believers or church is doing something that we believe is contrary to Scripture. But the gospel means this much. 
It's a single writer experience. Just one. You cannot have multiple Gospels. There are not many ways to God. So consider with me first. The Gospel is the foundation of God's church. What a great way to start an epistle. We are changed by the gospel. Paul says of himself, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, and all the brethren with me to the churches in Galatia. The gospel set Paul on the course to his being an apostle, Paul was a spiritually changed man because of the gospel. He was not who he originally was. He Originally, he went by his Jewish name, Solus, or Saul, we would say in English. Philippians indicates he was a Benjaminite, uh, hence the name Saul. Remember, the first king of Israel was a Benjaminite named Saul. And Philippians tells us that he was proud of his heritage. As a Jew, he was a Pharisee. He, he was educated. He was strict in his religion above his contemporaries. But when he got saved and after, he went from going by solace to going by Paulus or Paul or Pablo, as I learned this year in Spanish. And it's ironic that his name here, the very first word of this epistle means small. He's small compared to God. God is big. The gospel is big. But I'm not big. And he's no longer proud of who he is outside of Christ. It's no longer about Jesus or about himself now. It's about Jesus now. And thus, he was commissioned by God. Paulus was commissioned to preach the gospel. This was not a commissioning he received from men. It was something that God gave him. He was sent with a message of salvation, which literally came exclusively from God. So he could claim apostleship because he was a witness of the resurrected Christ. At his conversion, remember, he was a witness of Christ's resurrection, speaking to Jesus, and Acts records that testimony three separate occasions. And then later, perhaps, as it says, states in chapter two, when he went down to Arabia, for a few years. Maybe there he as well saw Jesus. Some people believe that's what happened during that time. But Paul now is one whose entire life is changed and he's speaking to change people. Those who accepted his message of the gospel became part of a spiritual brotherhood. He says, this is for me and all the brothers and, and I don't know that it just means men here. I, I think it's men and women, although Paul is, only refers almost mainly to men when he writes about his entourage, uh, but could be women too. He says, these who are part of this spiritual brotherhood, these are my co-laborers, as he writes in Philemon. These are my fellow soldiers, my co-workers, people who uh, are, have been imprisoned with me for the gospel's sake. These are brothers in Christ. Two church members who are brothers in Christ. And so in a sense, Paul is saying, the gospel has changed me 
And the gospel has changed you. And the gospel has changed our relationship with each other. The gospel changes lives. So we are changed by the gospel. We are blessed through the gospel. Look at verse 3. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, that's Jesus, gave himself for our sins in order that he might deliver us from this present evil world. So the gospel message here, it's that Jesus died for our sins, or literally in the place of our sins. He took our sins upon himself. This idea of atonement. Jesus became the sacrifice for our sins. All of our unrighteousness and ungodliness, all of our wickedness and evil went over to Jesus and he became the sin bearer and all of his righteousness was transferred to us. And this, this alone brings deliverance. This is pretty cool. This is awesome to think about. It brings deliverance from this present evil world. The very thing that holds men and women hostage, spiritually holds them hostage, this gospel delivers them from that. And every time you are sharing your faith with someone else, you are putting the key to their entire eternity in the door, in the lock of the prison in which they live. How awesome that all they have to do is push open that door and walk out a free man or a free woman. And so we're blessed through the gospel, blessed in our salvation that Jesus died for our sins and blessed with these qualities that come because of our salvation. I don't think Paul is just saying grace and peace. I, I sometimes have acquaintances in ministry who like to sign their letters or emails like the Apostle Paul did, grace, peace, that's fine, it's not wrong. But, but I think sometimes it can become a little trite. It can seem uh, perfunctory. When Paul says grace and peace, he's not just saying, here's just these two ideas, let me just throw them out to you. Do you realize that because of the gospel, what Paul is saying here is, this is the way you came to know God in Christ. It's all about grace. And because you know God in Christ, you now have peace with him. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. No longer are we enemies with God. And this salvation that we experience in Christ that delivers us from this present evil world is the basis by which we now have these spiritual blessings of unearned favor with God and absolute peace between God and ourselves. God is no longer angry with us. God is no longer pouring out his wrath upon us. We're not in any danger of the judgment of God reserved for the devil and his angels. We now have peace with him. We are blessed because of the gospel. So think about that. The gospel changing us. The gospel's blessing us. And finally, Paul says, the gospel glorifies God. 
God is glorified because of the gospel. Again, look at middle of verse 4. All of this occurred according to the will of God and our Father. He's talking now within the triunity of the Godhead that God the Father's will is the salvation of sinners. This is what he desires. And so he says then in verse 5, naturally a doxology to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is an acknowledgement that the plan to rescue you began not with Jesus, but with the Father. He desired to rescue you from the evil world that is dragging you down to everlasting judgment and set you free from that. That was God's will in the gospel. So our rescue in Christ was the Father's plan. And sometimes I think people, as they're looking at, at the triunity of God, Father, Son, Spirit, they, they see Jesus as the one that loves us. Jesus, is, we sing love songs about Jesus. He's the one we have this relationship with. But understand, it's through Jesus that we have a relationship with the Father. And it was, remember, the Father's love that sent his only begotten Son so that everyone who keeps on believing in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So the blessed fact of the gospel is that God the Father began the mission to rescue us from sin. And so naturally, he is glorified because of the gospel. Our praise belongs to him alone. We should just stop and say, thank you, Lord. We begin our services. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Every Sunday morning, why do we do that? Because that doxology is what rings out from the gospel. This is what you should be thinking every time you hear it. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. And this is one of Paul's many doxologies. But you can just see as he's writing along, you just almost get the sense, his little bony hand, right? And it had to be bony because that's, that's the way I picture Paul. He had his little bony hand. This short little bald man probably doesn't have any teeth because you know, he got stoned to death at one point, you know, so all of his, he can't have his teeth or maybe just one or something. But, and he's kind of hunched over and he's writing on the parchment and he's writing about how because of the gospel, he's been delivered. He, we all have, delivered from this present evil world and he just continues on with the thought, so praise be to God. It's the first thing on his mind. And yes, it's Holy Spirit generated, but that's in Paul's heart. And it's not just for now. It's, it's generated for ages and ages to come. For glory, forever and ever and ever and ever. And I don't know if you've ever experienced a worship experience where during the worship experience, you, you just said, this is beauty and joy and wonder and splendor. But that, my friend, that moment of time where your emotions and your will and your mind are all in unison praising God, that's eternity. That, that's what you're experiencing in eternity. That's what your loved ones are experiencing now in eternity. That same kind of incredible high that only comes from believers who are completely right and one with God. So, I guess I should ask you, is your life being changed by the gospel? If, if you've been saved for 40 
or 50 years. You know, you know, in a couple of years, I'll have been saved for 50 years. That's amazing. I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around that. Half a century, I'll have been a believer. But if you've been saved a long time, some of you have been saved a long time, are you still changing? Is your life being changed? Has it been changed? Are you changing? What's the gospel doing to you? If you've been saved for just a few years, just maybe under 10, less than 10, is your life changing? Maybe some of you are children here, you're growing up in a Christian home, and you can't really put your finger on the change. Kind of hard to do that. But, but you should be able to say, because of God's word, something's happening in my life. This is what God does. And then I should ask you this, if, if, to follow it up, because it just kind of naturally flows out of the first idea. If, if your life is changing, then is your life bringing glory to God because of what the gospel is doing in you? If, if you really want to understand how to glorify God, really you need to go back and think through spiritual change. Because the tongue that worships God comes out of the heart and life that lives for God. And that person is the one who really, truly is glorifying him. And so how is your life bringing glory to God because of the gospel? Now, because God is so glorified in the gospel, it should then shock us. And we're making a transition here to point number two. It should shock us that a well-taught church should abandon the gospel for a damnable lie. This is point number two. Those who corrupt the gospel foundation of the church must be cast out. This corruption is the result of the gospel being twisted by false teachers. Look at verse six. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you with that other gospel and would, in essence, pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul was shocked that his disciples were in danger of slipping away from the gospel itself, the gospel of grace, in Paul's mind, as he was hearing the report coming from those who had been in the churches of Galatia, was that it was being replaced by a non-grace-based gospel. And I put that in air quotes because it's not a gospel. The true gospel centers on God's grace in Christ. It cannot be the gospel if in any way you earn it. If in any way some merit of yours is added to make it better, it's worse. It's broken. It's perverted or corrupted, as Paul says here. You see, salvation cannot be merited. This doesn't mean the gospel doesn't require any work or labor. People get this confused. They, they, they'll say, well, if you prayed to accept Christ, that's a work. And remember, salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. So you don't have to pray to accept Jesus. Or they'll say, even if you claim it for yourself, that's a work. No. We're confusing and conflating the word. Conflating is the wrong word. 
Um, I'm trying to think of the word that, that, that I'm, I've got it on the tip of my tongue here. Where, where one word has two meanings. Uh, th this is what's happening here. The word work has two meanings, right? In, in, in the sense of an action, that's a work. But in the sense of merit, and that's what he's saying, not of merit. So the gospel, as we think about it, is not something that I earn or merit. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress, the hymn writer wrote. So it's not, it's not that I merit this, it, it, but it isn't that I don't work for it either. You know, I do pray to accept Jesus. I do claim the gospel for myself. There are things that people do, but it's not in the doing them of them that merits salvation. It's still all of what Jesus did. And so he, Paul, had gone into Galatia, I think southern Galatia, southern Gaul, uh, southern Turkey, and had preached the gospel in these towns and villages as he was traveling on his first missionary journey. And he taught them that it was Jesus who won their salvation. He's the champion. He's the, the, the commander. He's the leader. Jesus won our salvation. And now... These people had come from probably Jerusalem and had brought in another gospel, which he says is not a gospel at all. Because there is no other gospel than Jesus' gospel. This was not a gospel that saved men. What these false teachers were teaching, the corruption and perversion of the true gospel that said you have to have some merit of your own in order to win Christ, was a corruption of what Paul had taught them. And these people corrupted, perverted, twisted the gospel of Jesus into something that was wrong and a lie and evil. And this threw the churches of Galatia into a tailspin, into confusion. I, I don't know if you can just, in your mind's eye, imagine what it must have been like to be at a time where you don't have a New Testament, where, where a man like Paul had come to your town or village and had preached the gospel of Jesus and you had responded to that and you gathered together with Paul and he taught you for some time and then he left and people that he had especially taught who had certain qualities and character traits that he lays out later in, in 1 Timothy that they, we call the elders of the church or the pastors that these people now are preaching the truths that Paul had taught to them. We, we call it the rule of faith. In Latin, it was called the regula fide, the rule of faith. It was this corpus of doctrine. They didn't have a New Testament. See, you can't sit there and, and try to compare with what the guy's saying with, with something that you have in your hand. You just don't have that. So here you are in this New Testament church, and now a guy stands up and he says, everything you're saying is good, but it's a little bit incomplete. You need more. And now he starts trying to add in, and you're not necessarily even Jewish or even have any relationship to Jew Jews, although there are probably Jewish converts in that, those churches. There, there are many non-Jews there, most of which are non-Jews. And they're bringing in these elements of Old Testament Judaism into this message. And because you accept the Old Testament, Paul preached from the Old Testament, maybe you just conclude, well, they know better than we do. 
But the message that they're bringing is not the gospel of Jesus Christ anymore. And so there's confusion in the church. And, and Paul is, is just looking at this, and it's hard for him to fathom that this happened so rapidly. How, how did this happen so quickly? He had left the churches in Galatia on the right course. And now they're in danger of just throwing it all away. Becoming a cult. A false faith, a false religion. The other day, up in Maine, on the mission strip, um, well, uh, the painters were painting on the inside of the building. All the non-painters were outside doing yard work. And one of the tasks we had, they, the church there had torn down a building um, in the last few weeks and had uh, graded uh, some land. It was uh, probably about a half an acre of land, maybe a little larger than that, maybe seven, seven-tenths of an acre. And they graded this land. It was pretty flat, uh, and they wanted to plant some seed. And so we planted seed. They ran out of seed. And so they came back the next day. They planted some more seed while we were not there. And when we came back on our final day of work, we got back, and, and they wanted us to throw out some straw. So we got these big bales of straw, and I had some teenagers, and you know, this, this, is, this is really unskilled labor, okay? Really unskilled. I say that, it wasn't necessarily easy, but we were just strawing the ground. We were just going around. We got these big things of straw, and you're just beating them together, trying not to sneeze the whole time. Now that I'm thinking about it, I want to sneeze. I mean, it's just, you're just, it's like this, this suggestions in my head, I should sneeze, but you, you just, you're throwing out the straw. And, and we spent a few hours strawing this spot and some other spots where they plant grass. And then we came inside. We had some lunch, came inside. We were helping out with some things inside. And I looked out the window, and the wind had started blowing. And, and over the course of about an hour and a half, the wind blew all of the straw off that land and into the woods beside the church. And I looked at one of the teens, and I said, you know, it would have been better for us just to pick those bales of hay up and just hurl them into the woods. All the work we did is gone. It's just gone. I mean, there was, by the end of the day, as we were driving away, I looked out the window of the van and there was not a stick of straw left. Uh, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating. Maybe, maybe there was one, but it didn't seem like there was one. It was just gone. It had been blown away. And I can imagine, as I was feeling just a wee bit frustrated, that all this work that we have been do had done was just for, for nothing, just a waste of everybody's time and money. Can you imagine Paul's frustration here? Because everything he's done, his journey, the suffering, the pain, the hardship that he went through, and now he's looking at these churches and he's going, you have got to be kidding me. What's happened? You know, I couldn't even imagine. I cannot imagine. I know that the way churches go, that 200 years from now, it's unlikely that College Park Baptist Church will be here. That's unlikely. 200 years from now. There are churches that make it 200 years, but there are not many of those. And it's even possible that 100 years from now, College Park Baptist Church won't be here. And it may even be that 50 years from now, the church won't be here. 
But I can tell you that if I invested 40 years here, I'd be 73. I was 33 when we started the church. I'd be 73 years old. I, if I was 74 and I was looking at, at the church and, and it was just abandoning the gospel, what little bits of hair I would have left at 74 years of old, I would have already yanked out of my head. This is exactly where Paul is. I am shocked. I'm amazed. And so he then says, those who preach this false gospel have to be cast from the church. Look at verse 8. Though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we say before, we say now again, anyone preaches any other gospel than that you have already received, let him be accursed. For do I persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? If I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Anyone who teaches a false gospel, he says they are cursed, and it's immaterial who the messenger is. Doesn't matter. Paul says, if I myself come back into southern Turkey and I preach a different gospel, then I'm accursed. Don't listen to me. Have nothing to do with me. As one scholar wrote, the messenger doesn't validate the message. The message validates the messenger. And it doesn't matter who it is, necessarily. It matters what he preaches. So even a heavenly messenger, an angel, an actual angel, a cherubim comes to earth like Gabriel or one of the angels and actually preaches a false gospel. Paul says, don't listen. And remember, the angels are messengers. Angelos means message, messenger. Because false messengers are under God's curse. He uses the term anathema, meaning to be devoted to God's curse. He's saying these people are like Sodom and like Jericho. No hope of redemption, and they are doomed. And in that sense, then, they have no business being a part of a local church. This right here is the true doctrine of separation. I think it's been a little misunderstood in our day. This here is explaining what separation really is. We as a church must separate from church members if they promote a false gospel. Unbelievers, particularly false teachers, cannot be welcomed in as members of the church. They have no place here. I, I've had people visit our church. I had a man on a Wednesday night back. We had Wednesday night services right at the beginning of the church. He said, can I talk to you in your office right after the service had ended? And I said, sure. We were on Cary Parkway at the time. And I took him back. We, I was in a little closet, uh, not too much wider than something like this. And it was, you know, like eight. It was like a small prison cell. And, uh, but it was very nice, very nice, very well decorated. Had a tiny little desk in there. And I would live in this little room, no windows. And I could hear the dentist who had the other half of the building drilling people's teeth while I worked. So it was very, it was, it was a great experience. But uh, if, I, if I have a weird twitch, now you know why. But anyway, so I, I, I'm sitting here, this man's sitting, and he says, I can help you fix your church. Oh, you can. That's wonderful. What should I do? And then he had this list of all these things he would change. He had only been in our church a matter of about an hour and 10 minutes, and he had the solution to all of our problems. 
which he had no idea what they were. And I politely invited him to uh, come again another time, but that we weren't changing like he wanted us to change. He never came back. I've had times where I had people visit the church and tell me uh, all the horrible things about their former church, of which I thought, well, that's pretty good. <laughs> that's not bad at all. Actually, I kind of agree with your pastor. That sounds good. And, and at the end, in fact, Vernon Rooney was with me with one guy. All, all he did was run down his former church uh, for an hour and a half. And then at the end, I just said, we're not for you, brother. You need to go somewhere else. I've had people of other faiths try to come here. Do you know what I do when someone wants to join the church? Tell me your testimony. How'd you get saved? When were you baptized? Let's talk about what you believe. Because, because that's the basis on which you join the church. And if a person comes here and they don't believe what we believe about the gospel, they can't join. They don't belong. They're not one of the brothers in Christ. And in fact, Paul says this for emphasis. If this person is a false teacher, twice he says, they're cursed. And Paul makes it clear, it's because they're not believers. They're cursed because they're under a God's curse, condemned to a godless hell, which, by the way, is where everyone is going who doesn't know Jesus as Savior. And so I think here then, teaching a false gospel Paul says it's completely unthinkable if you're really a servant of Christ. The motives of the false teachers, it's revealed, they want to please men. He, Paul says, am I, am I here to make men happy? Am I the servant of men? I'm an apostle because God led me to this. God called me to my apostleship. I, I was sent by God. I'm working for him. I'm not working for them in that sense. Paul's motives at the same time for his own ministry revealed, I'm the servant of Christ. You serve men, I serve Christ. So the only message he says that he can preach is the message of Jesus. And my friends, if you believe this, then you understand that if a person becomes part of our church, if he hides his true motives for being here and becomes part of our church, but has an agenda where he wants to preach something that isn't the gospel, he cannot stay as a member of this church. And you have to be committed to that idea. And the only way you can do that is, first of all, to know the gospel well enough so you can spot a false teacher and then be willing to defend the church against the false teacher and even to cut off that false teacher from the church. And it can be hard because that false teacher, well, she's such a sweet lady. And I love working with her in the nursery. She's so kind. And when I was sick last year, she brought me some food and it was so delicious. You're saying we can't, we can't keep her in our church? No. Years ago, we had a young lady in our church, a young adult lady. She and her husband were here, and uh, she was involved in different ministries. And um, one of our older ladies, still part of our church, came to me. This younger lady hasn't been here for a long, long, long time, maybe 15 years. But this older lady came to me. She said, Pastor, I have real concern. Now, it was shortly after this that this, family, this couple left. They haven't been back. But she said, I have a real concern about this young lady. I said, really, why do you say that? She says, we were in the nursery the other night. And she told me this. She said, you know, the gospel of Jesus 
It isn't really what you believe. It's how you live. And, and, and you have to live out the gospel in order to be saved. That's a theory, by the way, of the atonement that's false. It's a heresy. Now, obviously, if you believe something, it will affect the way you live. That was the first half of the message. But, but it isn't the doing of those things that makes you a Christian. Now, at the time, I went to another one of our church ladies, and I said to her, I'm really concerned about this young adult lady because she is spreading a false gospel in our church. Now, she left, I'm telling you, within a week or two of that event. She left. Gone. And, and just recently, that, that lady came to me and said, you know, I remember you telling me that all those years ago. I remember that. She said, uh, and when you said that, I said, man, he is so harsh. <laughs> yeah, I'm Mr. Harsh. That's so harsh. But she said recently on Facebook, this young lady made a comment. She's not a young lady any longer. She's, a, she's an adult. She's middle-aged. She made a comment, something to the effect of, I used to be pro-church, and then I was kind of church neutral, but now I'm against the church. And the true colors finally have fully come out. She had abandoned the gospel way back when. She was never a part of the gospel church. And while we did not remove her from our congregation, she left, never to be part of our group again. My friends, that's what we're talking about here. Being willing to stand up and say the gospel is more important than a relationship with a person. As much as I may care about him or her, the gospel is just supreme. That comes first. And so we, if necessary, if I went away for a number of years and then came back to the church and you said, we'd love to have Pastor Matt preach again because the new preacher preaches for an hour and a half. We want to hear, the new, we want to hear Pastor Matt preach. And I got up and preached a false gospel. You should never let me back here ever again. You say, really? That's exactly what Paul says. If I preach another gospel, I should be cursed. I, I'm going to end with a little children's song. It, it was in my mind all afternoon. One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. On which side are you? There's only one gospel, and we have to defend it. Let's pray. Lord, Bless us as we go to prayer.